Welcome to the Forge by Trust podcast. I'm your host, Robin Dreek, best-selling author, veteran Marine, spy recruiter, and trust expert. Coming up next on the Forge by Trust podcast. I became head of security training and auditing, and I very much believed in the human approach to security. I saw the limitations of technology. Our version of behavioral detection is called TRAP, Tactical Risk Analysis of People, because that's what we believe it's about. Technology is fantastic, but you've got to use it intelligently. Mm. And what we're doing is we're trying to assess their ability and opportunity and intent to cause harm. Right. Trying to look at them and see to what extent they're matching our baseline expectations and to what extent they're comfortable in their surroundings. Welcome to the show. I'm Robin Dreek, and on the Forged by Trust podcast, we decode the interpersonal communication skills of the world's most acclaimed forgers of trust. We unlock the skills and techniques from spies, spy recruiters, master interrogators, globally recognized behavioral experts, C-suite executives, entrepreneurs, acclaimed authors, and thought leaders. Each episode provides specific actions that you can immediately apply to any aspect of your personal or professional life. Today's episode, Striving for Common Sense, is with my friend, a world-renowned and recognized behavior and aviation security expert, Philip Baum. Philip Baum is a security professional with an international civil aviation background, having started working for TWA at London Heathrow more than 30 years ago. He left TWA as then head of security training and auditing for its international division in 1996 and set up his own consultancy company, Greenlight Limited. Philip's reputation is built on his common sense approach to risk management. He encourages others to think outside the box and develop effective security solutions, capitalizing on human intuition and the intelligent use of technology. In 2021, he was a recipient of the Lifetime Service to Aviation Security Award presented by Emirates Group Security and Edith Cowan University. Philip devised and developed TRAP, Tactical Risk Assessment of People, a risk-based security system based on non-racial profiling, observational and questioning techniques. He's developed and chaired conferences including Behavioral Analysis, 2018 Cardiff, 2019 Minneapolis, 2020 Online, and recently just in June of 2022 at the University of Northampton. During today's episode, we talk about human behavior as a threat detection tool versus technology, observing baseline behaviors, three keys to assessing for negative intent, and many terrorist attacks such as the Ariana Grande concert suicide bombing in the UK. For those of you all just tuning in, if you could see what we were going through to get this all set. (laughs) Two and a half years into COVID when we should be. The most fluid thing ever is getting a Zoom call going and we were screwing it all up. (laughs) Well, with that, Philip, welcome and thank you for spending some time today to share your amazing background and insights. And by the way, congratulations on your conference. Tell me how to go. Thanks for asking. Yeah, it's a few weeks ago now. It feels like a long time ago, but it went exceptionally well. The feedback was the best we've ever had from a a conference. Everybody really enjoyed it. Obviously, we'd like there to be more people in the room. We always want more people to be there, but the quality of the debate was really high level. The questions that were being posed, the interest expressed, and the atmosphere was just, it was really, really good. And so we're really happy with it. And now we're having to think about 2023. Excellent. Hey, for for those tuning in, can you give the name of the conference again? Because it's intriguing. Yeah. yeah, it's Behavioral Analysis 2022 or Behavioral Analysis 2023. Excellent. Uh, Great lead. Behavior, 
We spell behavior the British way with a U in it. And I'll, you'll be happy to know I never correct that on any of the show notes. <laughs> so the okay. way it comes in is the way it stays. And so before we begin going on your amazing background, I'm curious, you said there was some great debate in there. What were some of the highlights you think that people could take something away from? I think probably the key highlight was actually the way in which different organizations actually imp- implement behavior detection and actually getting firsthand testimony from a range of different businesses, a range of different environments. We had, for example, the British Transport Police talking about the way in which they use behavior detection to identify potential perpetrators of violence against women and girls on Mm -hmm. the British rail networks. We had the Guardia Civil uh, talking about airport security in Spain. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police talking about the way in which they perform drug interdictions and identify other cross-border acts of criminality. And just seeing the range of different ways that people were actually using the same techniques. Right. I mean, even we have people speaking about it from a nightclub perspective, from a university campus perspective. And I think that that that, that was just really reassuring. We had a conference that didn't focus on X-ray machines and archway metal detectors and explosive detection. This was about seeing something and saying something and showing how in different environments it works. I l- absolutely love it because there is nothing more powerful in any venue that you're going to be in, whether it's the transportation venue, entertainment venue, work venue, in your home, neighborhoods, everywhere. It's all coming down to how we interact as human beings and be able to do it in a productive, healthy way and recognize when people might not have our best interests at heart, no doubt. Yeah. And and we've spent so much time trying to dispense with human beings and trying to automate everything. And Technology is fantastic, but you've got to use it intelligently. Mm. You've got, you've really got to say, look at the limitations of the different technologies that that people can are using. And you know, explosive trace detection, for example, it's great, but it doesn't detect all explosives, right. quantities of explosives, and right. means unknown to be fallible. It reminds me of two things in my own career that were always striking to me. And and the one is the use of the polygraph or lie detecting machine. It's a great example of a machine. I remember for years and years, we didn't have any polygraphers on my team. We had one. And then I was entertaining, bringing another one on the team, you know, because my team, all we did was counterintelligence, recruiting spies, all human interactions around forging trust. And I remember my first question to him was, tell me what you think about the polygraph machine. And he goes, and this is from a polygrapher, had done thousands of polygraphs. He goes, oh, it's a great prop. And I'm like, you're on. <laughs> because it yeah. comes down to the ability of the interviewer to make that connection and to inspire some of the shared information that is truthful and, and has veracity. So I, I love that response. And so that's what I love about your comments. Well, you're probably maybe familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. It's all yes. about the first two seconds. Absolutely. <laughs> Just in case, I, I, I hate to, to criticize at the beginning, but, and it's not a criticize, but I've got an eye for detail. Yes. I, and I'm, of course, I'm, I'm sort of looking at the screen behind you at the moment, and I'm seeing the title of our, pre, of our, of our talk. Striving for common sense. <laughs> yeah, but striving. 
Not Stipe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Is it important or do we use it as just as an example of how the fact you have to sort of look for details as well? See, I did that on purpose. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I, I I was just wanted to make sure I was being tested. <laughs> oh, that fantastic. I can multitask. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. That's what happens. So when Robin puts the, the show prep in the morning and I get all the graphics together and my spell checker does not hit when I'm doing my graphics, that's what happens. <laughs> no, I just, in case I thought, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe he wants to test me or maybe he wants to restart. I don't know. But it doesn't Oh bother. my gosh. No, it's, fan- no, it's, you know, it's fantastic, you know, because one, the greatest way to forge trust is to be transparent and own it. <laughs> so there you go. I own it. I messed that one up. <laughs> I was like, oh, is he going to talk about my book I have on the other counter here? Because I'm reading Leonardo da Vinci right now. It's like, no, he's talking about how he messed up. But that's because you are a great observer of human behavior. Fantastic intro. So, Philip, again, thank you for coming to the show and pointing out my <laughs> Please fallacies. Please go away. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best intro I think I've ever had to a kickoff. So with that, great conference. I'm looking forward to what you all define, discover, and share next year. And I, I think Abby Morano, who put us in Absolutely. touch, a brilliant young behaviorist is the best way I can describe her. I mean, she whatever she touches, she just dives deep on and uncovers a great deal. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, Abby's contribution to this year's behavioral analysis 2022 was was key. I mean, right down to the choice of the venue. I mean, we ran it in a, on a university campus here in the UK, at the University of Northampton, where Abby was affiliated to. Uh, that's why we were there. I don't tend to give individual feedback on individual speakers, but we did do some evaluations of, of all the speakers and we got feedback from all the delegates. And I can tell you that Abby is a highly rated individual. She gave a really powerful presentation and is a pleasure to be around. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And when I first met her through Joe Navarro, my first inclination was hold on tight and ride those coattails because she's going she's going a lot of places in this world and just a phenomenal individual. So with that, you have this amazing career. You've done these great things. You are a world-renowned behaviorist and organizer of other behaviors and discoverer of great knowledge, but it didn't happen just like this in a blink. How did you get into this area that is one critically important and the other just intrigues the world? Yeah, I often ask myself the same question, actually. It was certainly not something that I ever planned on on doing. I grew up in London on the flight path into London Heathrow, and I'd always had an interest in aircraft arriving. I knew all of the insignia of all the different aircraft and where they were coming from as they flew past my bedroom window. But I never wanted to be a pilot, but I wanted to work in the aviation industry. And sure enough, roll on X number of years. I I mean, when I originally went to university, I went to study law and I didn't want to be a lawyer. I it just didn't quite have the appeal. I, I, was, I was fascinated by people. Mm. And I, I needed to know the human story behind, behind situations. And I found myself actually, having spent a few years living in the Middle East, I moved back to the UK and I got a job working for Transworld Airlines, TWA, at London Heathrow, whilst I was looking for a job somewhere else. It was a temporary job. And I started off at the bottom. I mean, I was 
a security guard. I guarded aircraft. I learned how to use x-ray machines. I screened people and I was put on a fast track program. I went through profiling courses. At that stage, the profiling courses um, were 15 days long. And I do use the word profiling and I right. with racial, but they were called profiling courses sure. and they were 15 days long. And I presumably was reasonably proficient at it in an operational capacity. I, I certainly made my way up through the ranks fairly quickly. And eventually I became a trainer and I then became tasked with incorporating into TWA's international operations, sort of elements of the Israeli profiling system of the Israeli behavior detection program, but recognizing the fact that the Israeli approach doesn't work everywhere else in the world. <laughs> and I developed training courses and eventually I became head of security training and auditing. And I very much believed in the human approach to security. I saw the limitations of technology. I saw the fact that basically the best technology of them all was the human brain. And providing we allowed people to use it and empowered people to use it, right. got the best results. And we do exactly what we tell everybody to do in as they go about their daily lives. If you see something suspicious, report it. And somehow we weren't telling the security operatives to do the same thing. And I think in an aviation setting, I was even more frustrated because when you get off a flight, wherever you are in the world, you go through immigration control where they treat everybody differently, depending on your passport, you get a different type of interview. When you go through customs control, you're treated differently. Not everybody is subject to the same screening. And every day at airports around the world, customs and immigration officers find people doing something wrong after they've got off a flight. Right. Which leaves me thinking, hold on, if we can do it after they've got off a flight, why don't we do it before they get on a flight? Why, when it comes to aviation security, do we treat everybody as exactly the same? And it just doesn't make good security sense. And I strive for common sense. That's what I want to do. I've, I've been developing programs for aviation. And then over the last four or five years, obviously hampered a little bit by the pandemic, we've been starting to work in other fields, like in sports stadia and museums and governmental buildings, because it's the same principles that apply. You have a couple of areas I want to explore. One is your curiosity, because I've seen a theme with all my guests that have done amazing things with their lives. They have this intrinsic curiosity, and I want to kind of dive where that came from and a little bit more about that. But I want to kind of go back to what you said, which was kind of, that was really kind of profound and interesting that we do a better job of after screening, after people land than before they get on a plane. Why? Well, I, I think it's probably because government recognizes the fact that we will find people every day committing criminal acts with passports, with what they transport and what they carry, what goods they carry. And yet the chances of us actually finding a terrorist at an airport is pretty low. And so they know it's a really, really hard job. And Often around the world, I mean, I know in the States, the TSA is a governmental organization, 
but around the world, often, you know, customs and immigration is always performed, nearly always performed by government agencies. But airport screening is often delegated to either an airport or to a contract screening company. And even for those agencies that do employ people, they pay people less. And the caliber of personnel is lower than the caliber of personnel that they employ for customs screening. Now, I mean, the argument that is often given by governments, why do we screen everybody the same, is they say, well, we can't afford to miss a terrorist, so we have to screen everybody as if they're a terrorist, whereas we can afford to miss some drugs and we can afford to, to miss a forged passport. And my response to that is, if that is true, if, if the stakes are so much higher, and let's face it, wars result as, as a result of a failure of a, aviation security, then why are we deploying staff of a lesser caliber in some case, or certainly trained to a lesser extent, why do we not invest the same amount of money, or if not more, in the staff that do airport security screening? If it's that important, and I believe that it is that important, mm -hmm. you know, why are they second-class citizens when it comes to the security world? And, and that is something that I've, it's a question I ask people throughout the industry, and it's just sort of, well, that's the way it is. And outside of Israel, that's the way it is. Yeah, that's kind of, it's it's a fascinating challenge, like you said. It's such a critical aspect of travel that you'd think that people would invest more. And I, the only thing that's going through my mind as you're saying that is I'm thinking about HR departments in companies when they're doing hiring. All the problems that companies have is happening after they hire someone. And why did you bring on this person that obviously had some issues beforehand? Well, the pre-interviews of screenings must not have been thorough enough. So they were not picking up on things before they came in. So why don't you invest more in that end of it than you did after they come in? And it's, it's just, as you say, not common sense. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, and I think too often the airport security screener is a functionary. that They are facilitating processes. They are moving bags from one technology to the next. Right moving people through a process rather than being perceived as being security professionals. Right. And I do believe that a, a people working in an airport security environment, and, and many of them are highly competent individuals, many of them have a, a, a real passion to make a difference, but often they're hampered in what they do by the system. And I, I think the classic example of that is really, you know, when it comes to behavior detection, you know, imagine a, a scenario where you see somebody walking towards your checkpoint. It doesn't have to be an airport. It can be anywhere. And you think that that person could be a suicide bomber. And I always ask management of where, when I'm going on training contracts, I say to management, I say, if your staff see somebody that they believe is a suicide bomber, what do you want them to do? And nearly always the answer is report it. And I'm like, okay, so who do you want them to report it to? And in an airport, that could be to the team leader. Then to, the team leader must go and speak to the supervisor, who must speak to the duty manager, who radios into somebody else. And you're thinking, if you're dealing with a suicide bomber, that's too late. 
Yes. You need your people on the front line to be empowered to make unilateral decisions. And we don't do that in most in most environments. So I have a theory on this, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this theory, and that is the old structures of government institutions and organizations have such a a no defect mentality. They rely on SOPs and doctrine rather than free thinking and innovation, and they get bogged down in process because they fear someone's job is going to be ended because you allowed someone and empowered someone to make a choice. So same thing here, it looks like, is that the people on the front line aren't empowered with solving the problem. They're told to solve and stick to the doctrine, yes? No, absolutely. It's basically computer says alarm. Okay, we'll go with the alarm. Human says alarm. Well, what did the technology say? And it's, I mean, the system fails at that point. First of all, our enemy, and we have multiple enemies of different kinds. We're not just talking about terrorist enemy. We're talking, you know, whether it's in an aviation setting, anything from an unruly passenger to somebody who has poor mental health. At a sports match, it could be a a hooligan or somebody who's intoxicated. It could be a victim of human trafficking. Whoever it is that we're up against, they're thinking outside of the box. Right. And one of the very first exercises I often do with people in it when I bring them into the training facility, if, if I'm working in-house for an organization, is I get them to design an attack against their own and actually say, okay, you know what is here. You, you, you've already worked here for, by the time I get them. They've already, they're familiar with the, their working environment. And they come up with all of these plausible plots and 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 they say and and you then ask them the question and you think that the enemy doesn't know that you think that the enemy doesn't know how to exploit those weaknesses those vulnerabilities you know now what we've got to do is come up with a system that responds to the broad range of different threats that our society faces and empower you to be able to to make appropriate judgments And I get that we have to build in safeguards. We need to build in safeguards against racial profiling. We need to build in safeguards against inflated ego uh, or or damaged ego. We need to build in safeguards, but I think you can do that. And uh, you can do that through training. I mean, the way I deal with, for example, racial profiling is in courses, even within the aviation system, I tend not to focus on the Delabs and the Richard Reeds and the 9-11 hijackers. And I use different examples that don't necessarily come from you where that ideology is not necessarily part of it to get people to realize that, you know, the threat that the, the person that could pose a threat to their flight or their establishment isn't going to fit any stereotype. Uh, and that you've got to you need to use your intelligence in order to be able to solve the riddle. So what's the first step in that riddle? Did a really great job explaining that they're not going to fit this stereotype. So what should they look for? Well, I suppose if I, you know, to simplify it, I would say, know your baseline. Understand what is your baseline activity, whether it's for your employees or whether it's for your customers know what is baseline and identify deviances from that baseline. 
and act on it and 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 ask questions. But if you are asking me, you know, is there a suspicious signs list that we should be adopting? Then I I, I I'm very loath to use suspicious signs list. And I, I and I see organizations say, well, how many suspicious signs? Are we talking about the person who is sweating profusely? Or is, are we talking about the person who is shifting their weight from foot to foot? And I say, it, it's not about any specific suspicious sign. What you need to be able to do is to articulate as the screener or as the security guard, what it is about an individual's appearance and behavior that is giving you cause for concern. If it is the fact that they are sweating profusely, that's fine. But it might be the fact that they just paused for a few seconds before they joined the line to your checkpoint right. in an abnormal way. And that might not be one of your suspicious signs officially, but hey, why not use it? So I don't believe in generic suspicious signs lists, but I do believe in people being able to articulate what is giving them cause for concern in their working environment. And it's it's normally some form of deviance from the baseline. I couldn't agree with you more. And I just had someone on the show the other day. They said they're, they have great intuition about people. And I said, okay, but here's what I think your intuition is, which is exactly what it sounds like you're saying. Intuition is just you're picking up on a deviation from their words, their actions, and the environment around them of what yep. normal looks like. And like you said, in order to safeguard yourself and, and those around you and to be able to take action, you have to be able to place a label and meaning on exactly what you're saying and articulate it so you can share it with others like this. Because once you do it, you're also going to recognize it that much faster. Yeah. And you need to be able to put it in your in your reports as to why you need yes. to <laughs> afterwards why you've done something. And it can't just be, oh, because I thought they looked suspicious. It's got why. To, you've got to be able to say, what it is that made you feel that that person was potentially a threat or a person of concern. And you hit that exact word right there. You use that word, what? I accidentally used the word why. Why is a, in a feeling and emotion can be subjective. A what is actually very descriptive of an action that you saw in a, and can articulate. So it's a perfect way to describe exactly what people should be doing. So that brings me to going back to one of the things you alluded to at the beginning is curiosity. It sounds like you had this curiosity when you were younger about where these planes were coming from, where these people are from. And then you said you spent time in the Middle East. So how did you get your curiosity that you have? I've never been asked that before, but why not? <laughs> why, why am I a curious individual? Well, maybe it's because I was a, a, an only child until I was 12 years old and I had to find things out for myself. Maybe it was the fact that my father was a doctor and my mother was a marriage guidance counselor. And so there was a lot of secrecy around. Things I couldn't talk about, a lot of client confidentiality. So I was always interested in what the backstory was. I, I don't. I mean, listen, we we are all different animals. We all have different things that encourage us to to move in different directions. In the UK school system, we have a, a rather archaic approach to a higher education, or certainly secondary school education, where age sixteen you basically choose three subjects, three or four subjects, and that's what you do from age 16 to 18. Suddenly, math stops, English stops, unless you choose them as one of your subjects. And I, I chose geography, law, and politics as my, what we call A-level subjects. 
And I sort of guess that that's really what I do today. It's a little bit of geography. It's a little bit of law and it's a little bit of politics. And somehow that was my bent. That was what, that was what got me going. I, I, I think I have loved travel. I loved different cultures, different religions, different. I probably actually shouldn't have done law at university. I should have done anthropology. Right. Uh, that would have been much more me, but father was a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but you became an, an anthropologist at the master's and graduate level for the rest of your life, which is... Well, I don't know about <laughs> that, but I, I do passionately believe in trying to understand people. I, I understand what motivates people in different settings. You know, I'm involved to a certain extent in the charity world as well. And I, I'm just fascinated at what pushes people in different directions for, for, for good and for bad. Right. I mean, and I, yeah, people, people interest me. How do you train that? Because that is a critical factor to be successful in screening people and observing the world around you to pick up when uh, you know someone like me has a misspelling in an obscure little graphic behind me. So how do you train or can you train, do you think, curiosity? I, I, I think there are certain people that naturally, I don't think it is about necessarily training. I think it is about encouragement. I think it is about often the human stories. You know, if you teach... Go to my background, aviation security. And if everything becomes about the explosives and the firearms and the, in effect, not about the people that use them, but it's about what you're looking for. Instead of looking, I mean, I would say, we're not, we're looking for negative intent. Yes, it may be in the form of an IED, an improvised explosive device, or it may be in the form of a firearm. But what we're really looking for is negative intent. And you've got to be interested in what's going on up here in people's minds. To be perfectly honest, I couldn't really care less the fact that at 22 22 times a week in American airports, you find firearms. I mean, yeah, it's kind of sad that people forget that they've got firearms in their their carry-on bags. But to me, it doesn't mean that you stop 22 terrorist attacks. You've just stopped, found 22 people that accidentally had firearms in their bags. I'm much more concerned about identifying the person who hasn't got the firearm in the bag, but has got suicidal intent and without any weapon whatsoever that they're carrying through the checkpoint is going to do something terrible on board an aircraft. So it's not about, we spend so much time on prohibited items and you can't take your liquids, aerosols and gels. And it's like, oh, come on, let's get real. I want to know if the person in front of me has positive intent or negative intent. I believe that in 99.99999% of cases, that's not a scientific (laughs) 99.99, but I believe that in the vast majority of cases, you look at the way that people are acting and interacting with those around them. I mean, uh, I I know I've got to be reasonably PC about things, but... You know, there is still a fairly typical family setup that when you see mom and dad or mom and mom and, and the kids going off on a family holiday, they're going down for, what is it, spring break in Fort Lauderdale or wherever. <laughs> um, there is a certain dynamic about them. There is a certain way that those people speak to each other. Mm-hmm. That's what we're looking for. And 
whether or not they've got something prohibited in their bag, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I couldn't care less about, but I'm less interested in. Right. And I think the people that it's hardest to read are the people that are on their own. Right. If you've got a single person that is arriving at a sports venue or a single person that's arriving at a museum or a single person that's getting onto an am, going onto Amtrak, yeah, you don't see the way that they interact with the people around them, but that's why you need to be able to have a to to interject with a a, a greeting, a couple of words that will just break that cycle, that trance, and just see how do they respond? How comfortable are they are, are they in their environment? I think that what we're doing is we have somebody in front of us, and what we're doing is we are trying to assess their ability and opportunity intent to, to, to cause harm. Right. Trying to look at them and see to what extent they're matching our baseline expectations and to what extent they're comfortable in, in, in their surroundings. Now, and then we have to suddenly, I mean, the big challenge is what do we do when something when somebody doesn't tick the boxes. And I'll give you, a, 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 I think it's a really good example. It's from the Manchester Arena attacks of five years ago. This is the Ariana Grande concert mm-hmm. over in the UK when Salman Abedi detonated his suicide vest and caused the deaths of, I believe it's 22 people, but it injured hundreds of others. And the really sad thing about that attack was that Salman Abedi was seen and identified by a member of the general public, by a couple of members of the general public that discussed him, that realized that Salman Abedi did not fit in. He was carrying a backpack to a children's concert. I, I mean, Ariana Grande's audience are often kids. Right. And he was arriving towards the end of the concert. And this, the couple that saw him thought, something is wrong. He doesn't fit in. And they were so concerned that they actually went up and spoke to him and said, what what are you doing here? Why are you sitting in the location that you are? I mean, that takes a lot for a member of the general public to challenge somebody. And he didn't get the response that he wanted. So he went and reported it to the security guard. And the security guard said, yeah, yeah, I'm aware of that person. I've seen him a few times. In fact, I think it was over about an hour and one, one hour and 20 minutes that Salman Abedi had been being watched by the security team. And yet that security guard didn't do anything or did nothing of significance. It wasn't all his fault. He didn't have comms. He didn't have communications equipment. But he was so fixated or fixed to the fact that he had to stand guard on that door and he couldn't leave that door and he couldn't go anywhere else that he wasn't able to respond when there was a clear and present threat for a place in front of him. He eventually got another security guard, more senior one, who looked at him and they even discussed what they would do if Salman Abedi got physical. I mean, if you watch the Manchester Arena Inquiry testimony, it's horrifying because you realize there were so many opportunities for him to have been stopped. And the second security guard didn't act, basically, because he was frightened of being branded a racist. He thought, if I do something, it will just be the young white security guard is going to be accused of picking on the young Asian male. 
How do you overcome that in organization? Look at the other suspicious signs. It wasn't to do with color of skin or ethnicity. It was to do with the fact that you had somebody arriving with a backpack to a kid's concert and standing behind a stairwell or out of sight and not looking particularly comfortable. And they didn't do anything. Is that, and, the power, is that the power of being able to articulate exactly what they're seeing that will overcome that fear? I actually think it's the failure of training. Right. I think it's the failure of training. I think it's the failure of management. I think it is what so many venues often do, particularly in the hospitality industry, where you it's not like an airport where you've got the same same business that happens every day. You know, you've got your one concert that happens and then nothing happens for another month and you've right. got going from one venue to another. They don't know each other. They're casual workers. They've done huh, sort of training courses, but nobody ever really tests them to see whether or not they're, they're capable. Within aviation, the, I would like to think they would be, they would have responded. But by the way, the best profilers, the best behavioral detection officers in the aviation industry are the flight attendants. Mm. They get it. First of all, their lives are on the line. I mean, that. Right. but they, when passengers are boarding their flights, they're thinking, who's my problem passenger today? Right. That's, because that's what you're thinking of. Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's powerful stuff. So, so that's a, one of the greatest challenges and the greatest tragedies. What's the good news? <laughs> let's leave, let's, let's, let's leave with some good news. The good news is that there are some people to, that think outside the box. The good news is that we, well, first of all, I think that we are seeing a general reduction in the number of terrorist attacks. Yeah, there are some big incidents that happen every day around the world. And terrorism is certainly maybe looks a little bit differently now in 2022 to 2021, given other events in, in the world. But I think people can make a difference. I think there is a general appreciation that people do need to be trained in behavior detection. For me, the best story of behavior detection, if I'm allowed to just share one, is please, please do. It is from the avia. It is from the aviation industry, but it didn't involve sight of a human being. This was the Yemen printer toner cartridge bomb prop. Oh, yeah, go ahead, share this one. This and, classic. You know, this was two IEDs were sent by courier shipments from Yemen to the United States. And thankfully, Saudi Arabian intelligence got wind of the fact that there were two bombs being sent. Not only did they get wind of the fact there were two bombs, they even found out which consignment they were in, their airway bill number. Now, you can't get better than that. Than to, mm. This is the package that has got the bomb in it. Right. <laughs> they notified the British, the Emiratis, the Germans, and the American governments, and the packages were intercepted. In the UK, and I'm from the UK, and we're pretty proud of our security record, we intercepted the package. We used dogs, canine units. We used x-ray. We used explosive trace detection. We opened the package up and we found nothing. So we prepared it for onward travel because nothing was found. Computer didn't say alarm. Right. 
But in Dubai, where the second package was found, they did the same thing without the dogs. But the big difference there was a security officer said, wait a minute, we've got Intel. Meanwhile, I'm opening this package and there's a computer printer inside. Who sends a computer printer from Yemen to Chicago? Yemen is not exactly the world's number one supplier of computer printers. <laughs> Could, I don't know where you would go in Chicago, but you'd go wherever you go in Chicago to buy a computer printer. You don't bring it by courier shipment, which would cost more to ship than to buy brand new. And you certainly wouldn't get it from Yemen. So he then looked at the address it was going to in Chicago. And he found that the address corresponded with the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Jewish community of Chicago. Now, even for an Emirati officer who's not familiar with synagogues and Jewish communities, he thought nobody in Yemen sends things to Jewish communities, LGBTQ communities as well. Add that to the mix. It doesn't make sense. And we're being told that there's a bomb here. And he took it a stage further and he said, unscrew, take it apart, take that printer apart. And they found the bomb. And for me, that showed somebody that was thinking outside the box. They weren't going to accept the fact that the x-ray machine didn't show the, the, the bomb. They weren't going to accept the fact that the explosive trace detection system didn't find the bomb. They said, it doesn't add up. And I'm thinking, my gosh, that's when we had Intel. That's when we knew Airway bill number. And meanwhile, there are billions of bags flying around the world, which we all are saying are happily being exceeded. And we place our faith in those systems. Right. We need to, they are, they're pretty good systems nowadays. But we've got to stay at one step ahead of the game. We've got to place our faith in those people working on the front line that can make a difference. And if they get them, if they make a mistake, so, so be it. They will make mistakes. And anyway, even if they did make a mistake, you don't even know if they've made a mistake. The fact that they didn't find a bomb or a gun doesn't mean that they picked on the wrong person. That person could have been doing a dry run, a test run right. for a future attack. It actually, that is what we need to do wherever you're doing security. Shopping mall, airport, Amtrak, beach, nightclub, wherever. Identify the baseline. When somebody doesn't meet your basic expectations, ask questions. If you don't get the answers that you want, hate it. Absolutely. This goes back to, and it's a great way to kind of circle back to my very first episode ever of the Forge by Trust podcast with my great friend, Joe Navarro, about his fantastic book, Be Exceptional. The second trait of the exceptional person is the ability to have awareness. Observe their ability to observe and not just see, but place those two things together. See the environment and don't just walk through the environment. And this is a, the, the greatest example of people that have the power of observation. Phil, where can people find out more about you, what you do, and how they can benefit from you? Okay. Well, you can certainly look me up on LinkedIn. I, I've got my LinkedIn profile, but please do come to www.avsec.com. Com. That's short for aviation security or www.gltrap.com. Our version of behavioral detection is called TRAP, Tactical Risk Analysis of People, because that's what we believe it's about. It's about tactics and it's about analyzing people. 
perfect. And I'll be all in the show notes. And Philip, I want to thank you again for pointing out my flaws today. As I felt well bad, as... <laughs> but I thought maybe it's a test. <laughs> it exactly what it was. But anyway, again, thanks for coming on and sharing your great insights about human behavior with the audience and the world at large. You're making the world a better place and a safer place to live in. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate the invitation to join you. And thanks very much indeed. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Forge by Trust. If you enjoyed the show, took away a few new tools, I hope you'll click like and leave a great review of the show to show your support. If you're interested in more information about how I can help you forge your own trust-building communication interpersonal strategies for yourself or your organization, please visit my website at www.peopleformula.com. I'm looking forward to sharing my next Forge by Trust episode with you next week when we chat with the amazing Alith Dennis the social engineer.